This morning, the title of my sermon is Joy in the Liminal Space. Joy in the Liminal Space. I apologize in advance for the $10 word, but you can blame Dr. Chris House for that $10 word, who was here just a couple weeks ago. I'm stealing it from him. Uh, Liminal is one of these words that may not get used a lot in our day-to-day speech, but it's a word that speaks basically to the idea of a threshold of standing in two places at the same time. In other words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, all at the same time. So there's this sense in which we live in a tension. There's a sense in which there's the now and not yet. You've probably heard that phrase. The tension of both end or yes end. This sort of, is it, it's, it's sort of like the dusk and the dawn, right? Is the sun coming up? Is the sun going down? There's that similar light before the sun is fully in the sky or fully set. And I want to talk to you about joy when life sort of is dusky. Joy when you're hoping this is the sunrise and not the sunset. Joy when you've got one foot in a really great reality but you've got another foot in a space that you'd rather not be in. I think it's interesting, the songs that we sang this morning, saying that God is our first and our last. Isn't it interesting that in Him, we live and move and have our being, and He is our first and our last all at the same time. Having said that, I want to talk just really briefly about the lectionary. Now, the lectionary is something that is used by churches of all different sorts of denominations and expressions, and it's called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a set reading of scriptures that cover the course of three years, and they're laid out for Sunday worship, for corporate worship as people get together. And what you hear every Sunday here at Sanctuary is a reading from the gospel that is part of the lectionary schedule. Now, the lectionary is working off of an idea that probably harkens back to Jewish practice at the synagogue. If you remember in Luke 4, Jesus is in Nazareth, right? And this scene famously ends with them trying to throw Jesus over the edge of a cliff. But before things got rough, let's go back to the more pleasant time when they asked Jesus to read and he steps up and he reads from the scroll. Many scholars would suggest that there's a possibility that the synagogue had the practice of some sort of scheduled regular reading, at least of the prophet's. And what we do is we have readings that are from the Old Testament, that are from the New Testament or the epistles, and we have always, of course, a gospel reading, which we have been reading the gospel here uh, for quite some time. And the gospel during ordinary time is usually a pretty extended passage. And so that's what we focused on. Today, of course, was the reading of Blind Bartimaeus. What's amazing is the ways in which the lectionary is set up to highlight particular themes, and it sort of serves like a chord, right? So a chord in music is is not made up of one note. If you play one note, one note is not a chord. You need more than one note to play a chord, but the notes have to work together. So you can't just walk up to a piano and smash a bunch of notes at the same time and expect that to be a chord. You might get lucky, or it might be jazz, As a jazz head in the room, I can say that. I am not attacking country music this morning, I promise. There's a lot of temptation right now, but I won't because I'm in Oklahoma and I'm a New Yorker who likes jazz, so I picked on jazz. The point being, you have to hit a couple of notes, but those notes have to work together. 
And so there are some tones, I think, that come out of the lectionary today. And one of those tones that comes through is the tone of seeing. The story of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, of course, is a blind beggar in Jericho. Jesus comes by and he calls out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I love what Bishop Jake says about this text. He says, isn't it interesting? We spend all our time making excuses for what we can't do rather than doing what we can do. Bartimaeus may have been blind, but he wasn't deaf. He heard that Jesus was coming and he used his ears. He may have been blind, but he wasn't mute. He used his mouth. I'll leave that. That's free and that's an aside. We're going to keep moving on this seeing thing. Because what happens is in the Old Testament, we have a reading from Job. And Job has this line. I didn't give it to the guy, so just forgive me. We'll do it old school right now. Like, use a Bible. I'll find it. Job 42 is, the, is one of the Old Testament readings today. I love this line. Job 42.5. Job says this. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You start to see like the, the resonance here of, of the way that these texts work together. Even this morning, Paul put uh, our, the response. So I love the way they also do this with lectionary is, forgive me, if you all are lectionary experts, just be patient with the rest of us that grew up in like sweaty churches because we just need to edumacate ourselves here, right? You'll read from the Old Testament and then there'll be a responsive reading from the Psalms. So the response to Job... The, the, the Job section is everything's being restored double to him, and he dies an old man. It says fully sated in the King James. He died satisfied with a smile on his face. And think about what we read in Psalm 34. I love this idea. Remember the, the bulk of Job's story is his awful friends? You remember Job's terrible friends? Wave at me if you remember those guys, right? Who came with no compassion but what they thought was a lot of truth. And look at what the Psalm says. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So rather than you ganging up on me and telling me everything that I did wrong, why don't we just praise the Lord together? That sounds pretty good. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. We were just singing those words inspired by this. But look at this. What does it say in verse 8 of Job 30, uh, Psalm 34? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I have heard with my ear, but now I see with my eye. This is like Bartimaeus. Now, what's amazing about Job is in that section of Job, we find Job satisfied and in some way even speaks to a sense of joy that Job would have had after God restored him double. I think this makes sense to all of us in the room. Am I right? After God's restoration, we should be joyful. Thank you. I appreciated that. After God has restored you, you should be joyful. We're still going to work that one more time, third time, maybe. No. Okay. <laughs> but here's the thing. Of course we can be joyful when we've seen God's restoration. Of course we can be joyful when God has given us the new wife and the new kids and the new land and the new property and the new bank accounts after everything was lost, Job. And this is the essence of what the responsive psalm brings out for us. This is what Job is doing. Job is doing what David speaks of in Psalm 34. 
He's magnifying the Lord. He's blessing the Lord. He's saying that God has come and has this poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Friends, this is not hard. It shouldn't be hard for us to be joyful when we're fully cognizant of the blessing and the goodness of God. When we can recognize, and this is, this is I don't want this to slip by you, when we can recognize what God has been up to in our lives. Joy is not a challenge. Think about that for a minute. Joy is not a challenge. But as soon as I say that, it draws my attention to the fact that we may have a definition issue on our hands. And I want to press in maybe a little bit deeper than we normally do because I think there's something that we have to uproot, intentionally uproot in our souls and in our minds, and that's this. Do we conflate even subconsciously, joy with happiness and pleasure. We know in our head that joy is something different than happiness, but let's be honest about our gut this morning. On some level, I think the call for joy is complicated by our misunderstanding of the idea. So I want to take you to uh, a mentor of mine who's mentored me by books. I wish he had mentored me in person. He is now in the presence of Jesus in the heavens. His name is Dallas Willard. He defines joy this way. It is a deep-seated sense of well-being, of safety in God's universe. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, growing as a natural product of the transformation of one's inner self to be like that of Christ, which is itself full of joy. So I want to just, if we just take the front part of this definition and stay with the idea of a deep-seated sense of well-being. This word sense, awareness, wokeness to God, a deep-seated sense. Something that's deep-seated is not something that gets dislodged easily. It's not something that gets broken out of us easily. It's not something that a fight with the husband, it's not something that a, a, a demotion or a loss of a job, it's not something that rudeness, it's not something that cancer or Dementia can take away from us. It's a deep-seated sense of well-being. I love the fact that Dr. Willard refers to it as a product. Eugene Peterson, when he talks about joy, he says this. He says, joy is the consequence of following Jesus, not a requirement for following Jesus. Joy is the result, it's the byproduct, it's the secondary consequence of walking faithfully with Jesus. When you walk with him, you get a deep-seated sense of well-being because Jesus goes places like Golgotha, but he never stopped being anointed with the oil of gladness above his brothers. He never stopped being the fullness of joy just because he went to Calvary. Now, if joy is somehow the same thing as happiness or pleasure, Jesus at some point has to stop being joyful. 
But if joy is a deep-seated sense of well-being in God, you know that even on Calvary's hill, I'm in a good place. And there are some people in the room this morning that are facing things like death in the face. And I have to tell you, you can be in that place and be joyful. You can be in that place and be joyful. How are we when we're on this threshold? It's not even a matter of where we are as much as how we are when we're there. Are we marked out by joy even when our circumstances have removed every logical reason to be happy? I'm going to ask the question again. Are we marked out by joy even when the circumstances of our lives give us no logical reason to be happy? Some of this comes down to why do we even do this in the first place? Why do we get up on Sunday morning and get out of our houses and come to this place when we could be in our beds and we could be having brunch and reading the newspaper? We could be taking the money that we'll give in our tithe this morning and we could be getting a better car or taking a vacation. Why are we doing these things? Well, there are many reasons, but frankly, if at some level my life is not different, I just don't see the point. Now, we don't want to reduce this to some sort of simplistic transactional, transactional like principle thing. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying fundamentally, Jesus came to bring us newness of life. What does that look like if it doesn't look like the ability to stand in a threshold and be joyful? To be in a liminal space, to go to Calvary and know that God is there with you. What is... This is the faith that I want. I can't control my circumstances. I can't control the way you respond to my sermon. I can't go out of here saying, oh, well, I got them all. Do they just love that? I can't control any of that, but I can still be joyful. But it's not because I've worked something up. You see, if joy is not connected to happiness, it means it's not connected to happenings, which means it can't be hype. Joy is only fruit. <laughs> it can't be hype. There's another Old Testament reading. If you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet who has the unenviable task of, I'm going to walk and talk. Don't worry, I'm not like come down to preach at you. I just want a bottle of water, that's all. Oh God, he's off the pulpit. What's he going to do? I'm just going to get water. That's all. Cotton mouth. Jeremiah, just three verses, 31, 7, 8, and 9. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, that's that, stop there for a second, that's that seeing theme. Depending on your translation, it may say, see, behold, Bartimaeus, 
I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company. They shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, that's a comforting, beautiful passage. Here's the problem. They're all living like slaves in exile when they hear it. See, Jeremiah pushes us even further than Job. There are a lot of us that could get upset with God. God, why did you let, I'm glad you restored me, but why did you let all the bad things happen to me in the first place? Jeremiah takes us beyond that. That's Job's situation. Jeremiah is saying, I know God puts you in a bad place. I know God puts you in exile. But I want you to start, and look at this, singing aloud with gladness now. I want you to raise shouts now. I want you to proclaim and give praise now. This is where everybody in the room starts to get a little bit uncomfortable because this is where it starts to feel fake. This is where it starts to feel manipulative. This is when we start to fear that we might be shouting and singing and praising and proclaiming to try and get God to do something. But notice the text isn't framed that way. The text is saying, this is what we know about God. So act like it even when the circumstances have yet to align with it. That's a very different situation. When you are sick, when you are depressed, when you are alone, when everything is going wrong, the, the, the scripture is not saying praise God to get God to change it. It's saying praise God because God is good even when that's not. And all the more if God has spoken to your heart what he's going to do. This is when our praise, this is more specifically when our joy is deeply prophetic and the fruit of the Spirit, listen, not the sum of intellect. There is nothing rational about praising and shouting and proclaiming when you're living like an exile among the pagans. There's nothing rational about that. And notice God has already made up his mind to do good by Israel, whether they praise him or not. I should have got a shout. I should have got a hanky. I should have got something right there because I came all the way from Jenks. Come on. That's, I came all the way from Jenks to tell you God has made up his mind to do right by you before you started praising. Before you ever shouted, before you ever did your quiet time devotions, daily office, whatever, before you ever gave a tithe or an offering, God is determined to do right by you. So even if it hasn't manifest yet, even if we're living in the finitude of time, it doesn't mean that our infinite God has not already worked out a solution. This is what Jeremiah is pushing on us. He's saying, okay, Job can give God praise. Job can have joy after God's restoration. Can you have joy before God's restoration? 
In other words, is your joy conditional upon seeing the restoration? I think one of the greatest voices on joy is Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> if you know anything about Kierkegaard, he's a little bit off. 19th century Danish philosopher who was deeply depressed, but that guy could write about joy like nobody. No, listen to him. And this is unconditional joy, to worship the almightiness with which the almighty God bears all your cares as lightly as if they were nothing. Notice he doesn't say, and this is joy, when the almighty takes away your cares. He says, this is unconditional joy. We worship the almightiness with which the almighty God bears all your cares as lightly as if they were nothing. You see, when my mother-in-law is diagnosed with Louis body dementia, that's not a problem for God. It's a problem for me. That's why I want to be in the yoke with him. That's why I want to be joined up with him. That's why Peterson is saying joy is the result. It's the consequence of walking with Jesus. Because I can't work my way into joy when somebody's dying. But I can experience joy when somebody's dying. My joy is just like my hope. Hope does not eliminate grief in the same way that joy does not eliminate sorrow. Can I say that one more time for you? Hope does not eliminate grief and joy does not eliminate sorrow. For the Christian, these are not mutually exclusive ideas. What does Paul say to the Thessalonians? He says, we grieve, but not as unbelievers grieve with no hope. <laughs> we can be sorrowful, but we just happen to have the kind of joy that sorrow can't drive out. We've got an unrelenting, tenacious joy that comes as a fruit of the Spirit that when everything is falling apart, we could be sad and crying crocodile tears, but we're still joyful. This is why Kierkegaard would go on to say it takes moral courage to grieve. It takes religious courage to be joyful. You have to dare to believe in a God who is almighty if you're going to be joyful in the midst of your pain. You have to have the courage to believe that God is who he claims to be if you're going to find joy in a liminal space. Joy takes courage because joy requires hope. Joy is defiant because joy insists that there is more at work in our circumstances than what we can see or what we can feel. Joy is defiant. It can't be pushed around and it can't be pushed out. You can't unsee Jesus, folks. Joy takes courage because, listen to me, at times it can feel dishonest and at times it can feel insincere to express joy in hard times. There's a fine line here. 
There's a fine line here. Please don't judge a person and presume that they're fake if they come into church and the joy of the Lord's all over them. They might be fake, but guess what? That's not your problem. Let them be fake. That'll, phony proves itself out very consistently. But here's what I don't want to be. I don't want to live under the dictatorship of my circumstances or my emotions. I want to be led by the Spirit. And if I'm led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Jeremiah has a responsive reading in the Psalms, and the response to Jeremiah is Psalm 126. And rather than, well, this is, I didn't coordinate this well with Chris, but I was going to say rather than look in your Bibles, maybe you need to hear it. But you can look in your Bible. It'll be on the screen. This is where things get really weird. We've, we've, we've been told to be joyful after God's restoration. We've been told to be joyful before God's restoration. And then there's Psalm 126. When the Lord restored, past tense, the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. This sounds like Job being restored. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Semicolon. Look at this. We are glad. Can we all say those three words together? We are glad. One more time. We are. All right. Verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Wait a minute. Hang on. We were just having praise and worship and shouting and like getting our blessing on because you restored us. The last thing of verse three, three words, we are that sanctuary for real. I even gave you the hand motions like a choir director. We are. This is the last line and now like restore us. Does anybody sense the cognitive dissonance? Anybody sense, like, can you make up your mind? Are you glad or do you need restoration? How many people want to say, yeah? Ah, that's the liminal space. You see, the psalmist invites us into a different kind of joy, and it's a joy in between your restorations. Job has joy after restoration. Jeremiah calls for joy before the restoration. The psalmist says there's times on the other side of your restoration where you find out you need it again. I don't know if there's anybody in the room besides me who's noticed that God doesn't just have to do it once for me. I've got a couple yeses and a mm. There are times where God's got to do it, but three, four, 17 times for Mark. Hello. There are times when this book is dry as the Sahara Desert. Hello. And the last thing you want to do is sit in church on Sunday morning. There's times when praise and worship leaders get really annoying. Not my wife, but other people. Jalen, he's not here. He's annoying. 
liminal space. Church wasn't always that way. Faith wasn't always that way. Your marriage wasn't always that way. Your kids and your job weren't always that way. Your health wasn't always this way. You know that God healed you from stuff in the past, but now your remission is over and you're back in the chair getting chemotherapy. What is going on? Isn't it interesting that for the church in the East... Our sin issue is not primarily a legal or juridical issue. It is a health issue. The priest is the one who's a physician of the soul, not a lawyer or an arbiter. The work of God is to heal us more than it is to expunge our record of wrongs. It's the reason when you pray the prayer of confession in the old book, we confess there is no health in us. Mm, I got quiet right now. And maybe it's because what we're dealing with is like a cancer of the soul more than it is just the willful violation of God's moral code. Maybe what we're dealing with is something that goes into remission, but it creeps back up again, just like cancer. And God has restored our fortunes and we're shouting and we're singing and we're praising or we're just doing something nice in our heart towards God, whatever you feel like you have to do. We're doing that thing and then we're glad. God, we need to be restored again. We are glad. Friends, joy does not remove hardship any more than hope will remove grief. We're not calling for a fake, thin, superficial faith that just obliviously praises. We're not calling for blind joy. We're calling for Bartimaeus to have his eyes open and see Jesus for who he is. Because when you see Jesus, you see somebody who'll walk straight to Calvary and never loses joy. You'll see somebody who never has to evade, avoid, or deny the harsh realities of life, but never loses joy. This is what the psalmist is inviting us into. A life of joy is a life that decides to live in response to God's abundance, not under the dictatorship of our needs. A person who lives a life of joy can stand in an in-between space, one foot in heaven, another foot in hell. And here's what's true. You are hemmed in by holy memories on one side and divine hope on the other. You are hemmed in. Joy won't let you go. Joy has got its arms around you, and that one arm is saying, you remember what God has done for you in the past? You remember how you felt the presence of God in the past? That wasn't fake. That wasn't phony. That wasn't the devil. That wasn't pepperoni pizza. That was God. That's a holy memory that's in your soul. And don't let somebody come in and steal that out. Joy's got one arm around you this way. But then there comes another arm around you, and it says, God hasn't given up on you. God has given you breath today. God has given you life. He's given you the gift of his spirit. He's graced you with the desire to seek after him. You've got a future. You've got purpose you've got hope for tomorrow because you're alive today and these arms wrap you up and they're called joy 
And somebody say, well, why? They're putting their hands up and they're singing like they got no problems. No, they're putting their hands up and they're singing because they've realized their problems don't have say. Look what it goes on to say here. Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Like I said, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive for the Christian. As a matter of fact, the tears of our sorrow become the watering of our joyful harvest. Every tear that you cry in joy brings a harvest of joy. What I love about this text, I want you to pay close attention, is I, I want you to notice the change in the pronouns from verse 5 to verse 6. It's a little bit exciting. You might catch a little Pentecostal flu in a minute. I'm going to infect you all before I'm done. Verse 5, those. I love the anonymous those society. Those who sow in tears, those shall reap with shouts of joy. Verse 6, he. He. He who goes out weeping. We have to acknowledge at some point that the Psalms are not only poetic, they're prophetic. We know this because Jesus leans on them as he hangs on the cross when he says things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says things like, into thy hands I commit my spirit. These are Psalms. These are not just songs. These are not just poems. These are prophetic. Could it be, perchance, that somehow the he in 126 and 6, is actually talking about him. Could it be that the one who went out to Gethsemane in Mark 14 and wept great tears is the one who went out of the city weeping? Maybe he went out weeping, and when he was going, he was bearing the seed for sowing. What was the seed for sowing that Jesus was bearing if it wasn't his body? You remember Jesus saying, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. You might remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. What does he say? So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised, check this out, in praise. It is raised in doxe, doxology. We're going to sing it later. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What if the he in Psalm 126 is Jesus who goes out weeping, bearing his flesh for the sowing, but he comes home with shouts of joy? And what if that shout is your praise? Because he doesn't come home by himself. He doesn't walk into the, the presence of his father by himself. He comes home bearing the fruit. What does it say in Jude? The 24th verse, you've heard it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But what does it say? And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. 
Jesus is the one who went out weeping. Jesus is the one who bore in his flesh a seed for sowing. Jesus is the one who comes home presenting a harvest of joy, which is you and is me. Can we live into this kind of hope that if this is true of our life in Christ, that he's really presenting us to the Father in this way? It's also true of our life in the liminal space. It's also true of your life right now in your marriage, right now in your finances, right now in your spiritual life. Every present moment of pain is pregnant with future joy. Let's pray.